0: Welcome to High Heels and Heartache, a podcast featuring interviews with experts on the mental health and relationship topics that you're curious about and stories of extraordinary people. As always, I'm your host, Kendall Ann Combs. Thank you so much for being with me today. On this episode, I interview Melody Stanford Martin. Melody is a social ethicist and communications expert. Melody and I chat about how to build a resilient relationship, whether that is a platonic relationship, a romantic relationship, a family relationship. There are certain practices that if you employ, you will be able to build a resilient relationship. So we break down what the heck is a resilient relationship in the first place and how can you better create resilient relationships in your life? So coming right up. Melody Stanford-Martin. Today on the show, I have Melody Stanford-Martin and Melody is a communications specialist and she is a, okay, let's see if I can get this word right, a social ethicist. Is that right, Melody? (laughs) I was, it. I, I, was, <laughs> I was practicing. <laughs> so Melody wrote this awesome article about five practices for a resilient relationship that I've sent all of my friends and they all love. So I was like, I got to have her on the show. So before we dive into that, I just want to know, like, how do you become an expert on communication? What led you in that direction? That's a great question. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, so I worked for over 10 years in marketing communications and founded a company called Cambridge Creative Group, uh, of which I'm still the founder and CEO. Oh, I, oh, yeah, CEO. Yeah. 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 Feels nice to say. Feels <laughs> nice to
0: say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we work primarily in outreach for nonprofits, nonprofit messaging. How do nonprofits uh, communicate with the outside world? And so, you know, for the, over the course of 10, 15 years doing that kind of work, I I gradually made my way into being an expert and consultant and coach in communications and marketing side. In 2012, I decided that I wanted to masochistically study the big questions of life, (laughs) you know, the nature of being right and wrong, good and evil, truth, all of that, the ultimate. So I went to seminary. Oh, cool. And spent four years studying theology, philosophy, and ethics. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I did that. And so I was able to bring a lot of that work into my work with nonprofits and communication because I really understand on a really fundamental level the kind of work these nonprofits are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I realized, and this kind of goes into my bigger life story. I was raised as a conservative pastor's kid, and then I kind of grew up and my political views changed and it caused a lot of conflict in my family. Mm-hmm. a lot of conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: politics and religion, I think a lot of us can relate to conflict with family members and friends over politics and religion. Oh, yes, right we
0: now. can. Yeah, right? yeah, we can. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah,
1: it's it's a real, it's the elephant in the room. It is. Yeah. And I became really interested in conflict and how we deal with conflict and that a lot of us don't get a lot of skills for dealing with it on a regular basis. So I wanted to dive into that. So I ended up writing a book about that, which I think we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but I, I became interested not just how to deal with the bad stuff, but what are the markers of strong relationships that can handle conflict and not break? And that's the article that you read. So I'm really excited to be here today to talk about it all.
0: Awesome. Okay. So it's called the five practices of resilient relationships. And we're going to get into all of those five practices, but first, can you tell me, um, what is a resilient relationship? How do you define that?
1: So I'm sure we've all had relationships where things are easy breezy, right? Mm -hmm. Like you never fight. You never have differences of opinion. It's just so easy. I would not define that as a resilient relationship because your relationship's never been put to the test. You you don't know how strong it is. You don't know if it's going to crumble under pressure. You just don't know that yet, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So resilience is forged in the hard times, in the awkward times, in the times of conflict and impasse and difficulty. And what happens with a lot of us is, you know, based on how we're raised, based on even our biology, we might be really avoidant or we might be uh, brawlers, I like to say. Um, <laughs> I like to talk about six types of, of conflict styles and how we deal with conflict. Uh, so a lot of times our relationships will crumble like eggshells b- b- beneath our feet, right? Mm-hmm. We're scared to tell the truth. We're scared to bring up hard things because we don't know ultimately if the relationship can handle it. And Mm -hmm. so that's why I talk about in the article, resilient relationships are stretchy, like a rubber band, they can stretch and then snap back together.
0: They don't crumble like eggshells. Oh, I love that. That's stretchy, like a rubber band. That's a good way to think about how a good resilient relationship works. You get, it gets stretched, but it always comes back together.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'll give a huge caveat, a huge warning before we continue the conversation sometimes and i say this you know out of a moment of safety it just a disclaimer here, sometimes we need to not be in a relationship or not be close to someone because they don't have our interests at heart and they're a toxic person. We need to protect ourselves. So we're not talking about those things today. I don't want anybody saying, oh, I just have to stick it out with this abusive person because Melody said to do that. No, sometimes there are times when we need to set really strong boundaries and protect ourselves. We're talking about here, people who mean well to each other and just have a hard time getting along sometimes because there's just differences of opinion there's difference, different values, different viewpoints, and things are awkward sometimes. So that's what we're talking about.
0: Very good point. All right. So the five practices are, I feel like I need a drum roll, (laughs) (laughs) showing up for each other, seeing and being seen, sharing power, disagreeing well, and taking a break. And we're going to really address each of those separately. But first, can you tell me what happens if these five practices aren't used in your relationship? So if these
1: practices aren't present, what you'll find is relationships that stay either really shallow and can never go deeper, or you'll find that you or the other person will explode or implode. And I think most of us experience implosion more than explosion. It's rare, I think, in a lot of circles to get into just knockdown fights where you're yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times what we do is instead is we implode and we become self-destructive and we take that negative energy internally and we start to you know, develop addictions or self destructive behaviors or self hatred because we can't resolve this conflict or we're not addressing the conflict and it impacts us on a like a body level. So it really is for our own health
0: that we need to learn skills of dealing with conflict and building resilient relationships. What a wonderful point. So in your relationship, if you aren't doing these healthy practices, it really impacts you. So having a good relationship where you can work through things that, you know, might crumble the relationship, but if you, if you're able to use these five things, it makes you as an individual stronger and more mentally healthy. It does. Yeah. And hopefully it makes the people around you more healthy too. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) So, practice one is showing up for each other. So, what does showing up for each other look like in a relationship?
1: It might look different ways depending on the relationship you have with someone. Obviously, as a co—if you're working with the coworker that you don't get along with, you're both going to show up because you're coming to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have to be there. Uh, but you know, in today's day and age, it's super easy to like defriend people on Facebook or just completely avoid someone that you don't want to talk to. And I do a lot of work around polarization and, and communities breaking down because we are so separated from each other that we're no longer learning from each other. We're no longer treating each other even like human beings. It's very easy not to show up. It's very easy to avoid today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you want a resilient relationship with each other, with someone, it, it's it's like super common sense, but you, like, you can't have a resilient relationship if you don't spend time with them, if you're not intentional. So that can look like texting someone say, hey, do you want to grab some coffee? Or, hey, you know, we've been avoiding this subject. Like, let's get into it because I care about you and I want to have a strong relationship with you and let's, let's stop, you know, brushing things under the rug.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it, can,
1: it can look like something else. It can look like, hey, I, I see you're moving soon. Can I just show up for you and be there and help you? Because I want to show you first and foremost before anything else that you matter to me and our relationship matters to me and I'm going to take it seriously.
0: Oh, that's a really good point, but I'm never going to help people move. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm just not a good mover. I'm just very bad at it. And I'm not good, like matching other people's style of moving because I'm kind of type A. That's fine. <laughs>
1: That's fine. That's just one example.
0: Maybe you can send them a card. Hey, yeah. move. Here's a will, housewarming gift. <laughs> I will help my mom, though, because she's helped me so many times. I'm like, oh my God, I owe you like five moves, mom. Like, <laughs> we have to start it. <laughs> so the next one is seeing and being seen. So those seem like two different things, Co- So can you break each of those down? I can, yeah. It's it's two sides of the same
1: coin, so I had to make sure to include both. So, seeing S E E I N G. I want you to think back to the last time, and maybe Kendall, you have a story about this. Do you have, Do you have a memory of when someone really saw you? Yes. Do you? Do you would you care to share that story?
0: Yeah. So, um, my best friend Gretchen, who I talk about a lot on this show, um, she is one of the first people. I've, I've worked with Gretchen at different companies before. And when she saw me present and she was like, you're a really good presenter. That's something that I always thought about myself. But when she said it to me, it made me feel like so connected to her that she saw something in me that I really valued in myself that made me feel really seen.
1: That's beautiful. I love that. And a lot of times We are so involved with what's going on in our own heads and our own lives. You know, your friend could have just walked along her merry way and just not taken the time to tell you that. Right. But she took the time and she valued you as and she validated you as a human being. And that's what I mean by seeing. And it's really, again, tempting when you're especially if you're dealing with someone who you have a hard time getting along with, you disagree with them about a lot of things. It can be really hard to sit down and say, you know, I see here that you are saying this and I just want to validate that that part I really agree with. And I see your heart and I see that you mean well. And I want to take a moment to connect with you and and validate you on a really deep level before anything else. And you know what that does is it builds trust.
0: Oh, that's a really good strategy. That's really good.
1: Because if I'm talking to someone I know who is hell bent on attacking me and won't validate or affirm anything I say, then is there any point to talking to them? Because I know that they're just against everything I
0: stand <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah, it's not going to be a productive conversation. <laughs>
1: exactly. But it builds a lot of trust and credibility for me to say, you know what? I disagree with mo- most of what you're saying, but I see you and I mm-hmm. see what you're trying to do. And that's that your heart is good. I see that, you, you know, so there's a lot you can do there to see someone. Maybe you can't say that. But I think taking the time to try to get there is, is important in building resilient relationships. And the other side, of, oh, go ahead.
0: The One thing I'm, that's clicking for me right now is that a lot of times when you read about you know, how to have a productive relationship or a good relationship or a safe relationship, they say to think about it's you and your partner versus the problem, not you versus your partner. So if you're, if you're starting it by saying like, I know you're coming from a good place. I know your heart. I know that we're on the same team there. It probably does make it easier to attack that problem. So I love that. That's that's going on my personal growth journal tonight. That That's something I'm going to work on.
1: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Another way I've heard this said is assuming positive intent assuming someone means well until you know for a fact that they don't I -hmm. think can also go a long way in that and I think a lot of people say you know you should you focus on listening I think seeing is like a much deeper thing than listening seeing is like not only deep listening but validating someone for who they are and saying your humanity is good and I'm glad you exist that's a deeper level than just listening to what they say right I love it yeah and so being seen is the other side of the coin so if we're going to do that for other people we're also going to invite them to do that for us and this is where this becomes an exchange Mm -hmm. that we you know if we're going to invite someone into greater authenticity and vulnerability we have to be willing to model that and lead in that way as well right so if i'm going to ask you to see me Kendall. I'm going to share from my heart and my experience and say this is this is what I believe to be true. I'm not speaking for everyone in the world, but this is what I understand. And I'm going to let you see. You're, I'm going to let you see my heart instead of just <clears throat> instead of just staying in kind of the intellectual debatey realm and just talk about ideas. You know, we're going to we're going to acknowledge that there's a personal aspect to this stuff, and this does impact us personally.
0: So, being seen, it does require a little bit of vulnerability. Is that what you're saying? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that's important. Oh, I love that. Okay. (laughs) I'm so happy that we're talking. (laughs) All right. So sharing power is practice number three. So what exactly does that mean? And if power is not shared in a relationship, what happens to the relationship? These are excellent questions.
1: So again, I want you to think back to a time, and maybe you want to share, maybe you don't. I can share an experience, actually. Think back to a time where you felt like you didn't have space or you didn't have voice or someone was condescending to you or talking over you. Uh, you know, a lot of times as women, we experience this um, often. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I would in in the way I put that is that that person was hoarding power, not sharing power. I once walked into a music store. I'm a musician, and I talked to the sales guy about buying some sort of speaker, and he was just mansplaining everything to me and, and didn't ask me any questions. He's like, "Well, this is a microphone cable." I'm like, "Oh my gosh! I've been playing music since I was like 10." You know, like you don't. So, so I would say that's an example of not sharing power when when everyone has an equal space in equal space in the room. Room, equal seat at the table, an equal voice, no one's voice or opinion is more important than another's, then you build more resilient relationship because everybody has a way to contribute and everyone can have a sense of power and, and agency.
0: So like, if that doesn't exist in, let's say a romantic relationship or a platonic relationship, it feels like the lack of that would almost create like a parent-child dynamic. Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. It does And you,
1: you know, this can be seen in, in, couples where, and and I'm not a licensed therapist. I want to give that caveat, but I've seen this quite a bit in couples where there's a narcissistic type personality where Mm -hmm. everything is about that one person and the other person just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until there's almost nothing left until they're, until the other person, their existence really, they exist for the sake of that other person and their identity. And I think it can be really hard in romantic relationships because we tend to idolize sacrificial love. And not asking for what we need and not asserting ourselves and our voice and our opinion. But in my opinion, as a non-therapist, I believe that in order to have resilient relationships, both people need to have equal power and equal voice, or it really creates some unhealthy habits.
0: Yeah, I could see where that would definitely happen. So the fourth practice is disagreeing well. And I want to read a little quote because I absolutely love it. So you write about disagreeing well, that relationships are resilient when they can hold the weight of conflict and impasse. Instead of running away from disagreement, we must learn the art of healthy disagreement. And then you list six really important things that we can do when we're disagreeing to disagree well. Now, the first one, I got to tell you, is a struggle for me, <laughs> and, and that's suspending the desire to resolve. So break that down for us.
1: <laughs> I'm glad you asked about this in particular, because that was one of the driving forces that drove me to write the book in the first place. Uh, my relationship with my mom in particular, she's a wonderful person. We disagree with just about every over just about everything under the sun we disagree mm-hmm. about everything mm-hmm. politics religion you name it and there came a point where we had some really serious boundary issues because we were both trying desperately to force the other person to agree with us and it wasn't working and it actually caused our relationship for a while to crumble we went for about four months without speaking at all and she's one of my best friends mm-hmm. so it was really hard for it, it, it actually speaking about that bodily impact on us it made both of us sick. I landed Aww. in physical therapy. She she landed in, in counseling for depression because of that unresolved conflict. Mm-hmm. And what I've found in my work is that when we kick against what I'll call impasse, I'm not budging, you're not budging. When we kick against that so hard, it really causes so much problems. Instead of accepting the really hard and uncomfortable truth that we can't force other people to agree with us, we can't. Mm-hmm. It's not ethical. It's not right. Uh, so when we start to accept that we can say, you know, I can argue passionately. I can be articulate. I can be, I can be really, really courageous and strong in the way I communicate, but I need to stop short of forcing you to agree with me.
0: And, and that, it really spoke to me because I'm not like a force you to agree with me person, but I am a, um, a bad solution is better than no solution person. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd rather like, I'd rather lose the argument than have it like in, as you said, as an impasse. So let's say there is something that we don't agree on. We're never going to agree on it. And we are at an impasse. What is like, what's the healthy way to move forward? Do you acknowledge like, hey, this is, you know, Let's agree to disagree. Like, how do you get rid of, I don't know any other way to say it, but like the icky feeling in your stomach that there's something there still. I know that icky feeling well. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And so this is actually like a much bigger body of thought. So a lot of us are familiar with conflict mediation, conflict resolution kind of stuff, right? We go mm-hmm. through to seminars, like this is how you resolve conflict. But what I found in my work is that the hardest conflicts to resolve are not resolvable. I'm never going to convince my mom to change her mind. She's never going to convince me to change her mind. What do we do with that? Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. so there's a so the type of work that I do I, I work in the vein of what we call not conflict resolution but conflict transformation transforming oh. the conditions that caused the conflict in the first place.
0: Oh wow. All right. Well, you're going to have to come back on and explain that because Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So if
0: you th- if you think about conflict
1: transformation is getting down deep into the roots. It's not just pr- pruning the leaves above the surface. Mhm. And creating kind of a temporary fix or a band-aid solution, but it's getting out of the roots and saying, where's this whole thing coming from? And for my mom and I, the real impasse that we are experiencing was not that we believe different things is the way we are treating each other and the boundaries we were lacking. That was really what the conflict was about.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, that that's tough work. That's really digging in. Oh, it is. (laughs) It definitely is. And that actually leads us like right into the next um, way that you can disagree well, which is asking great questions. So when we are, you know, in a conflict, how can we make sure that we're asking great questions?
1: Yeah. So the phrase I like to use is open and honest. So mm-hmm. open questions, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. But if you, if you think about a leading question, like if you're, you're being interrogated by a lawyer on a crime show where were you the night of the 25th? (laughs) It's a very pointed question versus versus saying something like, what have you been spending your time doing lately? You're allowing the person a much wider range of options instead of leading them to the specific answer that you want. And by honest, I mean not having a hidden agenda in, the, in there, right? Like again, so an open and honest question genuinely wants to know and is genuinely curious versus already knows the answer and is trying to trap the other person into answering the way they want.
0: Gotcha. So, oh, it is like, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not asking gotcha questions. We're asking questions to get information. And not to prove that we are right and that person is wrong. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And it's tempting not to do that, right? It's tempting to really, especially if you really don't like what someone's saying, to make an inquiry into why they're saying it. But in order to build trust with that person and to protect the health of the relationship, you actually need to understand where they're coming from because otherwise you can't really speak to it accurately. You probably say things that aren't true about what they believe because you don't quite understand it yourself.
0: Yeah. And you're not seeing that person. Exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. All right, next we have banishing shame. So how do we banish shame in order to disagree well?
1: Shame is pretty trendy right now, I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like super trendy to take down people on Twitter, you know, if you can, how, how much can you just totally lambast a person's character in 200, mm-hmm. in 240 characters, whatever it is. <laughs> um, but and this is what, this is the way I like to put it. Think about a time in your life when you've changed your mind because someone screamed at you and embarrassed
0: you. Never, never. That's (laughs) not how we work. Okay. So if
1: you're actually interested in, in transformation and growth and education and personal development, change, real change, getting the person to own their own change. Shame is not really an effective tool. I would say shame is probably effective when it comes to like political leaders and political movements and protests where it's a very intentional use of like, you should be ashamed of yourself, this is not right, kind of shame. But when it comes Mm -hmm. to interpersonal relationships, shaming people, canceling people, calling people out, I'm an activist, so I understand why you would want to do that in some cases, but for the most part, it's not effective if you actually want to reduce anxiety. Because what happens when we reduce anxiety in these conversations, we can increase curiosity because we're no longer in fight or flight mode. We can get into a place where instead of stress hormones coursing through our body and literally, (laughs) literally inhibiting our ability to learn, we can know that we're safe. We know that someone's not trying to attack us. We can actually open our minds and learn new information and, and actually be curious about ourselves and about the process and think deeper because we're not just trying to survive. So shame is not effective in most cases. And, uh, if you've been taught to embrace shame, then
0: maybe think twice about that. Mm -hmm. And, and I love it that in the article, you say uh, uh, one part of banishing shame is to focus on calling in educating and not calling out, which is shaming and embarrassing. I, I love that line.
1: Yeah. And, and that comes from the world of, um, of community organizing and activism. And I, I love it too, because you know, I think it's really easy to be like, oh, how could you say that thing? That was so offensive. But instead, saying, hey, would you mind next time saying this instead? Mm-hmm. Right. It's a totally different experience for that person who said that thing. It's kind of
0: like you're working to make an ally and not an enemy.
1: Yes. Bingo.
0: And it goes back
1: to what you said earlier, working together against the problem, not me versus you. It's a really powerful change of perspective.
0: Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes right into the next one, which is inviting others to sharpen us and teaching things that we would otherwise miss out on. I love that. Yes. Yes. And it it, it
1: requires a bit of humility, right? Especially if we think we're right. I'm one of those people who thinks I'm really right all the time. And it's it's really (laughs) hard for me to, you know, for example, going back to my relationship with my mom, my mom to say, uh, I really hate a lot of the things that you believe, but I'm leaving the door open to the possibility that, you know, some things I don't, and you have a way of looking at this, that I might need to understand. And I'm going to, I'm going to open the door to that. And I and I hope you, I invite you, I call you in to keeping the door open to me that maybe I have some things to teach you. I have some information and a perspective that you might not have learned before. So maybe we can at least sharpen each other if we can't agree.
0: Yeah. I, one of my favorite quotes of all time um, is, what do I believe now that will turn out to be ridiculous? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that you know that goes right in there with you know other people our our relationships they help to make us better to make us wiser to make us nicer to and and some of that is born out of these conversations where we disagree with people yeah yeah exactly that's how we learn mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, so the next one is telling the truth which seems <laughs> like oh yeah no brainer but it sometimes it is a little difficult to do that in a relationship
1: it can be yeah especially if we feel like we're protecting someone's feelings or we're afraid of the consequences, uh, sometimes there can be a, a high reward and high punishment for telling the truth. One famous example is just whistleblowing in mm-hmm. in organizations, right? Mm-hmm. If I don't tell the truth, I'm rewarded because I get to keep my job. Everybody likes me. But if I whistleblow and I know it's the right thing to do, I could lose my job. And that's really hard, a- especially when you get into like, you know, power structures and, and jobs and all that. So I've done work with, a lot of different groups, you know, coaching, consulting work where we talk about um, what makes a a relationship resilient. And what I ask people to do is think about the relationship in their life that is the most resilient. You can say anything, you can have any conflict, you know, that person will still be there for you. You matter to them, they matter to you and you are strong together. And I ask them, what is the number one thing that you value about that relationship? And almost every time they say the ability to tell the truth and then I ask the same question in the reverse. I say, think about someone you have a really fragile relationship with, and you're walking on eggshells. What is the number one thing that you, that makes you um, sad or disappointed about that relationship? And almost always, it's the ability to tell the truth. They can't tell the truth in those situations. Mm -hmm. So telling the truth is, I think, one one of the key markers of having a resilient relationship. Are you able to be honest? And are there consequences or punishment if you are honest with that person?
0: Yeah. Uh, Note to all my fellow people pleasers out there. That, that part was just for you. Tell the truth <laughs> if you want a resilient relationship. Don't just go along to get along, as they say.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and focus on building a relationship that can handle it, telling the truth. And you know what? If you have a relationship where you're struggling with that together, you might sit down and have a conversation about your relationship and say, hey, can we just make a rule together, a ground rule, that we're going to invite each other to tell the truth, and we're going to try really hard not to be offended or not to react You know, because telling the truth is really important because sometimes there's information that I'm missing or you're missing and we need to be able to hold up a mirror to each other and give that feedback. And if we don't have that, we're not as strong as we could be.
0: I love that idea of holding up the mirror to your partner that I really like that. So the last way that we can disagree well is to say thank you. So what, why in the world are we saying thank you to a person that we disagree with?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is my favorite one, which is why I'm glad we have it last to wrap up this section, because so I was posting something on um, Facebook a couple of years ago, um, and I like to stir the pot a little bit. So I was posting something a little bit, you know, but I thought most people reading this would agree with me. It doesn't really matter what I posted, but for the sake of argument. uh one of my friends got on there and was like, you know, I disagree and here's why. And I was so mad because I was sure I was right. And I was sure <laughs> I was saying something super, super articulate. And, um, I d- I started writing back to my friend and I started with, thank you for disagreeing. And I realized that sounds so weird to say that. Thank you for disagreeing. Like nobody says that. No. And it kind of got my wheels turning about how, you know, my friend, her name is Dory. She could have yelled at me. She could have ignored me. But she took the time to like respectfully disagree with me and challenge me. And my goodness, isn't that a gift? Yeah. When someone does that for us.
0: Yeah. That's that, a gift. And, and that really ties back, go, go, Dory, to the um inviting others to sharpen us. Yeah. So like not being resentful when it happens, but saying, Okay, actually, that's a interesting or new point of view. Thank you for, for educating me about that.
1: Absolutely. So I found one of my new favorite phrase when I get into Facebook debates or whatever I'm doing, thank you for the conversation. It instantly lowers animosity. It builds trust. It builds credibility. It, it makes the person understand that I'm trying to see them uh-huh. and I'm being intellectually humble Thank you for the conversation. I'm not here just to attack you.
0: (laughs) It goes a long way. It goes a long, long way. It's so interesting to me that in that, you know, number four practice of disagreeing well, all of the things that we've just discussed, they all like mesh into each other in different ways. I really like that. I'm glad. Yeah, I I think they mesh into each other well.
1: And, And the last thing I'll say about disagreeing well is this is my advice for people who are stuck in conflict. I would say to you, pretend like every conflict you have is unresolvable first so that you can work on mending the relationship before you actually work on the problem itself. Because I think a lot of times what happens is our relationships are broken and we're spinning our wheels in the mud, trying to attack the problem when what we really need to be focusing on is the
0: relationship itself. I love that. And that, that's why like, um, relationships can break, right? If you're thinking this one disagreement is going to break the whole thing, then it's definitely going to break the whole thing. Yeah. But if you, if you think, okay, we might not be able to agree on this in the end, but we're going to get through it. Yeah. I love that. And I think that takes a level of
1: commitment. That's not always our, like said out loud, you know, in marriages, it might be because you take vows and you say for better or worse, I'm going to be here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other types of relationships, I've, I, I recommend to people that you sit down and you make like a, an agreement together, a, co- a covenant or, or whatever you want to call it. We're going to talk about hard things and not run away. I, you matter to me. I care about you. I'm making a verbal commitment to you that I want to have a resilient relationship with you. That can be really powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. I can tell that you uh, studied theology because you use the word covenant and not yeah. contract. <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe contracts might get a little bit legal,
0: but uh, how, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So the last practice to build a resilient relationship is taking a break. So how in the heck is that going to help you? so so if you so this article is actually essentially the last chapter of my book
1: and i studied a lot of different friendships to think about to look at what are the five practices of resilient relationships and the most famous example of a an odd couple friendship i found was ruth bader ginsburg supreme court justice former Mm -hmm. uh may memory be a blessing and Mm -hmm. anton scalia and a lot of people don't know this they so they're polar opposites in their political views Everything mm-hmm. about them, Scalia is very, was very conservative. Ginsburg, very liberal. But they were best friends. They used to <laughs> they used to go shopping together. They used what? to go to the opera together. Yeah, they their families went on vacation together. So they would they would go to the Supreme Court. So probably I would argue like probably the highest stakes job, one of the highest stakes jobs in the world. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. You could say like you're fighting for stuff that impacts millions of people. You have to be on your game at all times. So, they would go to the courtroom, throw down, right, like scathing dissents of each other's work. And then they would leave the courtroom and they would like go on holiday together with their families. <laughs> like, what? And, uh, and a lot of people have wondered, like, how the heck did they pull this off? Like, how did it work? And, you know, it was interesting because when Scalia passed, people asked Ginsburg, like, are you glad that he's gone? You know, because you don't have this like person to oppose everything you believe. And she said, the supreme court would be a paler place without him oh w- without his disagreement without her his constant challenging of her and people around them like their their family their kids said they both believed that in order to achieve justice achieve the truth it it requires many many different perspectives to navigate and negotiate that mm-hmm. and so And also they worked in a way, and this kind of goes into taking a break as well and some of the other things we've talked about. When Scalia was asked, excuse me, when Ginsburg was asked about why why she was friends with Scalia, uh, she said that the way he worked was extremely respectful of her. So for example, he would get his work done early so she could have plenty of time to review it and respond. He never tried to back her into a corner. He never treated her like she was less than. He showed her great and utter respect by the way he disagreed with her. He mm-hmm. disagreed with her well. Mm-hmm. So that showed her that she could create a trust with him. And and when, it asked, when he was asked about this, why they could be friends outside the courtroom, he said, Well, if you can't leave your work at the door, then what are you doing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's really great. So, And the the way you describe it in the article is that the rubber band, when it's stretched, it has to step back. So that's the taking the break. Like you can't constantly be in this conflict perpetually. Like it's got to get back to the a peaceful, that, that everybody feels comfortable with, again, we're not talking about abuse, we're just talking about run-of-the-mill disagreements, that where everybody feels a sense of peace again, or that relationship will not stand.
1: I Yes, I, that's how I would say it too, that in order for us to have a relationship, we need to have a relationship. We need to take mm-hmm. breaks and remember that the the whole reason we're in relationship at all is just to enjoy each other's company and to, you know, and like you said, if things remain strained all the time, I've actually worked with clients who are in that perpetual conflict mode and they spend more time talking about the relationship or about the conflict than they do actually having a relationship. So what I like to recommend is if you're having trouble talking to someone about the hard stuff. Set a timer for 20 minutes. And then when that timer goes off, take a break, make some popcorn and watch a movie. Remember to have a relationship
0: before anything else. I love that. That's great advice. Oh, I'm I'm definitely going to use the rubber band thing for forever now. Thank you for giving me that (laughs) gift. (laughs) Absolutely. It's been so
1: nice to talk to you about all of this. It's just Mm -hmm. great to see someone who's so passionate about healthy
0: relationships well, it is my passion. So now we're going to just take a little, uh, because as you said, this is part of a greater work that you've done um, because it's one of your missions to give people the tools that they need to resolve their conflicts. And you wrote a book called Brave Talk. So what else is in that book and who should be reading it other than everyone? (laughs)
1: <laughs> everyone <laughs> in the
0: world. Um
1: yeah, so like I said this this chapter is is the last chapter so kind of everything else builds up to this, but I cover things like healthy disagreement, asking great questions, power structures, the role of fear, how our belief structures work, our where our opinions come from, all about assumptions and how we form assumptions. So it's it's a bigger than just a conflict. It's it's more about how we think about the world and each other that's that's real real big uh, <laughs> how we argue how, how we argue ethically actually it's really getting down to how we talk to each other and, and the health the ways that are the ways that we communicate how they can be healthy or unhealthy and how to get to a healthier place
0: great and you also have a game on your website that that people can buy that, that helps with that and it's called base camp so what's in base camp? So, actually, my book started as a conversation game. (laughs)
1: cool. That's so cool. I wanted to create more spaces for people to practice these skills because we don't have a lot of practice. A lot of our education systems don't teach these things, and you have to learn them by accident and sometimes learn them not very well. So, I wanted to create a conversation game, and then I thought about all the things that you need to play the conversation game really, really, really well. And that turned into the book. So if you want to check that out, uh, if you go to brave talk, you can download the beta version for free. Oh, and okay. yeah, so it's a game. It, it can be played with between three and 12 plus people. And it, it's just kind of, it provides a structure for difficult conversations. You can play it with a silly topic, like Uh, favorite superhero character, or you can, or you can play it, quote unquote, play it. It's not really funny at this point, but um, use this as a tool for having harder conversations about hot button topics. I love that. Or you can use, or you can use the tool to just talk about your relationship in general and how you treat each
0: other. Oh, that's important too. So And all of these things, I'm going to link in the show notes so everyone will be able to to read your article, to buy your book, to download Basecamp, but you also have classes and workshops. So what are the topics uh, of those workshops and classes and and how can people sign up for those? Sure. So if you subscribe to
1: bravetalkproject.com, you'll find a way to subscribe and enter your email you can get notifications on when we launch new workshops and classes. We have a lot around difficult conversations and healthy disagreement. We also have some workshops around uh, anti-oppression and anti-racism. And there's a whole range of of things, as well as my blog that has a lot of great tips for all the things that we've talked about today. So
0: check it out, bravetalkproject.com. Wonderful. Well, Melody, thank you so much for being with me today. And you're definitely going to have to come back and talk about ethics so that you're, you forced me to say the word ethicist more, <laughs> <laughs> but this, this has been really great. And, and thank you so much for all that you're doing to, to help us have, you know, more, more, more happier disagreements um, <laughs> and more resilient relationships.
1: This has been an absolute pleasure, Kendall. Thank you so
0: much. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Thank you again to Melody Stanford Martin for coming on the show to teach us all about resilient relationships and conflict resolution. If you are interested in um, buying Brave Talk, or downloading Basecamp, or attending one of Melody's um, workshops, just go in the show notes because I've I've linked everything there. So just with a couple clicks, uh, you can get to all of Melody's resources. Speaking of books, this fall I will be releasing my first book. Um, it's really been a labor of love, and I am just so excited for you to read it, um, and hopefully it will be a good resource for you. Again, thank you so much for listening, and if you are in an unhealthy or dangerous relationship, there is help available. The number to the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. Again, The number to the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799.